Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Not just here in America, but throughout the world, the forces of liberty are battling the forces of authoritarianism. Here in America, battles played out after George Floyd and on January 6th. And who knows what might happen between now and November of 2024. These are moral battles for the soul and future of the country. But hopeless as it may sometimes seem, such against-the-odds battles have been won before. The civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, and even the anti-war movement in the 60s, were both in their own way successful. But why and how were they successful? And what lessons do they provide us in the battles we are fighting today? The 1950 and 1960 civil rights movements were framed as nonviolent struggles. Yet baked into that nonviolence were methods, tactics, training, and communication skills that were the equivalent of and every bit as good as tightly controlled military undertakings from which we can all go to school for the moral battles that lie ahead. If you understand the context of this battlefield better than my guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Tom Ricks. Tom Ricks is the author of multiple best-selling books, including First Principles, The Generals, and Fiasco. He was a member of two Pulitzer Prize-winning teams in his years at the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, and has been called the Dean of Military Correspondence. It is my pleasure to welcome Tom Ricks back to this program to talk about his newest work, Waging a Good War, a Military History of the Civil Rights Movement, 1954 to 1968. Tom Ricks, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's great to have you here. When we look at, at any kind of sustained battle, sustained effort, you know, we throw around the term war pretty easily, whether it's the war on drugs or war on crime or what have you. Are there certain elements of war that just naturally come to these battles or when we look at the civil rights movement, was it much more intentional, much more than just an accident of the way things evolved? Oh, it was absolutely intentional. It was the result of years of study by hundreds of people, years of thought, training, discussion, how to go about this. The point of inspiration for many of the people who originated the civil rights movement was Mahatma Gandhi and his movement for uh, independence from the British rule in colonial India, which was, of course, successful, a great nonviolent campaign that lasted several decades. What the people took away from that, studying that, and someone like James Lawson, who was a key civil rights trainer, went to India to study Gandhian methods. What they took away was the need for intense preparation, study, training. You had to think about what the jobs were you wanted to do, what kind of people you needed to get to do them, what kind of training and support they needed to be able to carry out those missions. And finally, at the end of the day, you'd have a demonstration or something. But the demonstration they understood was just the tip of an iceberg, of a very large iceberg. And when we think of it in, in war terms, in military terms, there, there's the sense of thinking, it, you know, I think it was Mike Tyson that said, you know, you can have the best plan in the world until you take the first punch in the face. To what extent was the planning aware of what the potential consequences were? Black Southerners knew all too well the capacity of the system for violence against them. 
And I think that was one reason that they turned to nonviolence. They had been dealing with violent reaction for several hundred years. Slavery was a system built on violence, you know, whippings, beatings. You know, a common punishment for running away was having all your toes cut off, called hobbling. Uh, so they knew the system's capacity for violence. One thing they came to understand was the system did not speak nonviolence, the white power structure and the security structure and the dominant caste. So by using nonviolent methods, especially confrontational nonviolence, very different from passive resistance, by using confrontational nonviolence, they were already one step ahead of the opposition. And remember, the white supremacists were quite content to use violence. It had worked for 300 years. They didn't see any reason to turn to something different. And in using this nonviolent confrontational method, talk about the ways in which they kind of threw the other side off balance because the other side didn't really know how to deal with it. Well, first, uh, they trained people. One of the most common things in a confrontation, the human being feels the impulse to fight or to flee. The first thing that nonviolent training does was prepare you to suppress that instinctive response. So the students in Nashville, preparing for student sit-ins to desegregate lunch counters in 1960, they spent months in church basements role-playing. Okay, this group is the students sitting at the lunch counter that won't serve them. This other group will be the mob attacking them. And they come, they pour coffee on them, they kick their chairs up or underneath them. Uh, they might even stud out a cigarette on somebody's back. Then they would switch sides, and the kids who had been the sit-in students would now become the attackers. So they all learn things like to overcome your instinct. Another one is when the student next to you is being beaten, interpose your own body to take some of the blows and to distribute the violence a little bit more evenly. But it's also they learned how to confront. Again and again, they were told, um, you need to come at them again and again. If you do a demonstration today, and they, they hit you violently, you've got to be prepared to come back again tomorrow, again, nonviolently. So they taught people in Selma, for example, you are not being chased by the sheriff. You are chasing the sheriff. What does that mean? It means that when John Lewis is standing on the steps of the courthouse in Selma and Sheriff Jim Clark screams at him, did you hear what I just said to you? Lewis responds, yes, did you hear what I said to you? They are changing the relationship. They are changing the balance. But I have to say, we're talking here about tactics. But the point of departure, I think the thing was so successful for the civil rights movement helped them so much, was they began with strategy. It's an area that interests me, especially because I think the civil rights movement was better at strategy than today's military, which is one reason we've spent the last 20 years mucking around in Afghanistan. The civil rights movement knew what it was about. It knew what it was trying to do. They began with a strategic question, who are we and what are we trying to do? The answer formulated in Nashville in 1960 by James Lawson, that student of Gandhi, and by Diane Nash and James Bevel was simple. Their answer was, we are people who will no longer tolerate segregation. Now they added, they said, we know the white people may kill us for that, but that's on them. That's not on us. Once you make that decision about who you are, we would rather die than live with segregation. That leads you to tactics. 
that can be quite stunning. The Kennedy Justice Department officials would call up Diane Nash during the Freedom Ride in 1961 and say, if you people get on that bus tomorrow, you're going to be burned. You'll be killed, burned to death. And she said, yes, we understand that. They said, no, you don't hear us. You're going to die. And she would say, you know, before we let the volunteers get on the bus, they have to write a last letter to their parents and sign their last will and testament. So the Civil Rights Movement had made fundamental decisions about who they were and what they were willing to risk. And I think this is strategically the important departure for them. It really put the white supremacists on the back step. They had never dealt with such determined opposition that was speaking such a different language. How much of this comes out of the fact that it was a moral battle? I think they understood entirely it was a moral battle, and it wasn't just about the rights of black people. The prime goal of the civil rights movement was to be treated like human beings and to treat everybody like human beings. As Martin Luther King said in one speech, the mission was to redeem the soul of America. The point was that civil rights for black people would make America a better place and indeed a better place for everybody, which it did. Civil rights was a remarkable social revolution. In 10 years, they made this country a better place. They certainly didn't make it a perfect place, but they improved it. Certainly there were, there were many people that joined the movement as it progressed and, and, and the anti-war movement became conflated with it at a certain point. Given all the things that were surrounding it and happening in the country around it, how were they able to maintain that strategic and tactical focus? The key word is discipline. And the funny thing is, it seems odd to talk about civil rights movement discipline because it isn't mentioned much. But when you talk to civil rights veterans, when you read transcripts, when you read their own internal discussions, they constantly talk about two things, training and discipline. Discipline means you maintain nonviolence, even though it's really hard, even though you, when somebody spits in your face, your impulse is to spit back. They were actually taught, somebody spits in your face, ask the guy for a handkerchief. Uh, in Nashville, one day that happened. He said, sir, do you have a handkerchief? And the, the white man began reaching for his handkerchief. And then he said, hell no. But for one second, that, you, that human being had been reached. Uh, so training and discipline. Uh, they maintained discipline in their marches very carefully. They had parade marshals watching who was marching. They had leaders of each group keeping an eye, um, never giving in to the temptation toward violence, looking out for provocateurs and infiltrators, uh, people who might slug a cop and give the cops an excuse to become very brutal very quickly. You wanted not to give the other side an excuse. To do that, you had to be extraordinarily disciplined, and you got that from training, from people who understood the job, who knew the people on their left and right, and trusted them also to do the right thing. How did they maintain command and control as the battle raged in places like Montgomery or Birmingham or Washington? How was command and control part of this? They were actually very good at counterintelligence. And command and control and counterintelligence walked hand in hand because of the black church. The black church starts becoming very involved in the South, the civil rights movement in the mid-50s. Uh, people like Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy and Andrew Young are all coming out of the church. 
a lot of the Nashville students were seminarians, John Lewis, um, James Bevel, C.T. Vivian. And the black church gave the movement a safe harbor. When there were very few public places that black people controlled, you didn't have black officials, you didn't have black police, you didn't have black politicians of, of, in any number who controlled any resources. But the church was where you could meet safely. It could be your command bunker. Uh, it was where you could have your sessions and discussions. It also was a way you could control information. During the Montgomery boycott in 1955-56, when somebody would call up their headquarters and say, hey, what's going on tomorrow? They would say, call your church and ask. That controls the flow of information. If a person has a church, the church will tell them. If he's a stranger who's just an informant or trying to get some information, they're not going to tell him. What did they learn as they went along? Certainly one of the things about any military success, as you've written about, was the, is the ability to learn from mistakes, to make adjustments, to make those mid-course corrections. Yes, they were very good at that, and that flows from a fundamental military virtue, which is honesty about what you are seeing and doing and hearing. This goes back to uh, Robert's Rangers uh, early on in the French and Indian War, uh, had an army manual, and among other things, it said you must be absolutely honest about what you see, an army is depending on you. You needed honesty in your discussions. And so the Civil Rights Movement was brutally honest in its meetings, which went on sometimes for hours and even days, discussing what they were doing, what it meant, and how to change. So they made a big, several big mistakes in Albany, Georgia, early on in, uh, I believe it was 1962. And they'd gone in late. Other people had started the movement there. Those people had very ambitious goals. We're going to desegregate the whole city. They had inadequate resources. Uh, and they had, uh, most of all in Albany, a police chief who was smart and himself adaptive. So after the failure of the campaign in Albany, Georgia, Martin Luther King Jr., Andrew Young, uh, Wyatt T. Walker, several other people uh, involved in this sit down and say, what just happened? What mistakes did we, did we make? And you have to be honest, and you've got to be honest with your boss. A great example of this comes in September 63, a terrible time, the Birmingham church bombing, when dynamite is set off against the, the wall of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, killing four little girls. Everybody is shocked. Everybody is depressed. Everybody is stunned. And there's a funeral for three of the girls, and then the, all the leaders of the Civil Rights Movement leave the church and go to the cemetery with the girls for the burial. It's the natural impulse. It's the emotional impulse. Diane Nash is horrified. She said you left thousands of people in and around the church full of energy, roiling with negative feelings, and you gave them no direction. Part of the job of the nonviolent leader is to capture that ne negative energy and to recycle it into something positive. And you didn't, and it's on you guys. Uh, it was a very honest letter. It was true. Uh, and it was just a mistake that is understandable in this terrible time. Uh, but they were honest with each other. They felt they owed it to each other to be honest, and they felt it that they owed it to each other to listen to each other. Casey Hayden, a woman in the uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, 
So the reason our meetings are so long is because when you're asking people to put their lives on the line, you have to hear them out. When they had success, how did they deal with that? How did they not become too intoxicated by some of the successes that they had? I think avoiding intoxication was easy because it had been so hard. By the end of each campaign, they were exhausted. Uh, there's a famous saying that nothing is so melancholy as a battle lost except nothing is so melancholy as a battle won except a battle lost. They came out of the campaigns feeling rather melancholy, knowing that they had achieved something, but also they had a long road ahead of them. They had, this movement was built for the long haul to be sustainable. Uh, interestingly to me, they were always focused on the end game, even from the beginning, another area in which I think the civil rights movement does better than the U.S. military. They always looked at where do we want to be at the end of this. The U.S. military called this phase four. They called it reconciliation. So a good example of that is in Birmingham, at the end of the campaign, among other things, they have won desegregation of downtown restaurants. What do you do about that? Do you go in and make a big noise and say, ha, 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 we can eat here now? You could, but they were careful about it. They called ahead to the restaurants and said, you know, we're, I'm thinking of coming in for lunch tomorrow. What time would be convenient for you? First, it's a polite way of putting people on notice. You're telling them we're coming, but you're doing it politely. Second, you are training the former white enemy in how to live in integration. So I'm talking about how good they were at training. Not only do they train themselves and their, their groups, they end at the end of the game, they are training the opposition. Were there breakdowns in the operation as it went along, and how did they deal with those? Because there had to be people that thought, no, there's a better way to do this. You're being too easy, or you're not doing it the right way. There constantly were questions about nonviolence. Okay for you, not okay for me, some people would say. Others would say, it's okay tactically. You understand why we want to march. You don't want to charge a bunch of armed policemen who are only too happy to shoot at you. Uh, so some people said, yes, tactically, no, strategically, it's not a way of life. And some people rejected it entirely. Uh, there's an interesting byproduct of that, though. Uh, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, which often worked with local police, never knew when it attacked if there were going to be shotguns around in the hands of people who were willing to defend the civil rights movement. Uh, sometimes there would be weapons around. Fred Shuttlesworth, an ally of the uh, movement in Key in Birmingham, Alabama, went and rescued Freedom Riders who were surrounded by the KKK up in Anniston, Alabama. He showed up in a few cars. He brought up a convoy with, every, with shotguns pointing out the window of every car. So that was a threat of violence. He didn't need to use it. Uh, violence was part of their life every day. They lived with it. They learned how to live with it. Um, it made it hard constantly. It made it feel like a war often. I would just mention Fred Shuttlesworth. Uh, one thing I like about him, he's a former moonshiner turned minister, very tough, wiry, tenacious in Birmingham. Before the Birmingham campaign begins, he gets a phone call from the local white power structure, the business leaders in Birmingham. Reverend Shuttlesworth, could you come in and talk to us? And he comes in, and they said, Reverend Shuttlesworth, 
Martin Luther King might come to town. How do we stop that? And he looks him up and down, and he grins, and he says, you know, I've been bombed twice. Church got bombed. My house got bombed. None of you ever called me then. But now, this minister might be coming to town, and you want my help. Much of the battle was about changing laws, changing attitudes. How much was politics a part of the equation? Politics is a big part of it. Public opinion is a big part of it. Putting pressure on politicians, telling them that the current situation is no longer tolerable or sustainable. There has to be some form of change. The only question is, what form will it take? So the Kennedy brothers are interesting to see in this period. They come into the White House, and Robert Kennedy, John's brother, becomes attorney general. And at first, they're kind of standing in the middle. They look at you know civil rights, and they look at the, the white power structure, the dominant caste, sort of back and forth, you know, one or the other. They're trying to balance them, and they kind of feel they stand between the two of them. Eventually, uh, they change, and one reason is Birmingham, Alabama. In Birmingham, Alabama, when President Kennedy saw Bull Connor, the head of police and fire in Birmingham, use police dogs and fire hoses against children, some of them as young as eight years old, and the rest of the nation saw that on television, John F. Kennedy said, this is not tolerable, this is not what I was told. The South told me they knew how to handle the race issue. If this is how they're handling it, it's, this is wrong. And he moves over and actually goes from being very wishy-washy about civil rights to supporting a strong civil rights bill. Uh, later, the march in Selma, when the Alabama State Troopers and a bunch of KK guys on horses attack peaceful marchers, that has a similar effect and ensures that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 gets passed, one of the most important pieces of legislation in American history. Unfortunately, the right-wing Supreme Court, in a reactionary fashion, has spent a lot of energy and effort peeling back parts of of the Voting Rights Act of 65, and they've really taken it apart. But that had a huge effect. Those marches, the, the acts that followed the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and by 1968, I would argue that the United States was, for the first time in its history, a genuine democracy. And that is attributable to the achievements of the civil rights movement, which is one reason I would like to see all these people I'm talking about, people like Diane Nash and Fred Shuttlesworth, I'd like to see them on postage stamps. How important was communication to the public? You mentioned television a minute ago. During the, the arc of this story, the role of television takes on a larger and larger role. Talk about that. I think three things come together. This is more a hypothesis. I really can't prove it. But I see three things coming together to form the civil rights movement, to energize it, to make it occur when it did. First is, at the end of World War II, a million black veterans come home. They've served in the Army. They've seen the world. And they say, you know, clearly there's a different way to live here. And there's a violent wave of white suppression in the South against specifically black veterans, things like a black veteran who is actually still in uniform on the day he is discharged from the army, being purposely blinded by a sheriff in South Carolina who jabs a nightstick into both the guy's eyes. 
which shocked Harry Truman, by the way, and leads to the integration of the army. Uh, so you have the returning veterans. Second thing is the black church, for reasons I don't understand, steps up and says, we will give you that, that um, skeleton of support, that structure that you can build on. And the third thing, as you mentioned, is media. It's not so important in the beginning, um, in 52, 53, 54, but by the end of the 50s, television, uh, television stations are spreading across the country. They're learning uh, how to use and move news very quickly. And television cameras capture this in a way that nothing else is. You get the Birmingham March being televised. You get the Selma March. And again and again, people just say, that is wrong. They see this presented, the Bull Connors, Birmingham. Little kids being hit by fire hoses so powerful that the, the, the water knocks the bark off of trees. When it hits the girls in the head, it rips their hair out. There's big clumps off the side of their head. That's the nightmare vision that the nation sees on television presented by Bull Connor. And then a few months later, you have the March on Washington. Martin Luther King, at the end of that day, gives a speech in which he says, I have a dream about America in which we are decent people being treated decently with equal justice before the law. That's what we want. In that speech, he introduces the civil rights movement to America. Until then, um, white media had not covered Martin Luther King's speeches. After that, they always did. So what you get in that year, crucial year of 1963, is two visions of America presented the nightmare of Bull Connor, the dream of Martin Luther King. And Americans watching this, these speeches live on TV on the March on Washington say, you know, we're going to go with this King guy. And finally, to what extent can social movements today learn from this experience, the degree to which perhaps it was sui generis to the cause in the moment versus something that can be replicated? They are learning. They do learn. One key figure in Black Lives Matter actually went to James Lawson, the Nashville trainer, early on, and said, what do we do? And he says, I'll tell you, you know what a successful demonstration is? It's not the number of people you get out there. It's the number of people you can get out tomorrow again to have a sustainable organization and movement. So these great lessons are being imparted of organization and training the one thing I would like to see more emphasis is on is nonviolence. Violence turns off the broad American public, that middle that may be wavering, not sure uh, whether they really support this stuff. Sometimes they say, I support your goals, but not your methods. If you keep it nonviolent, you get a much bigger chunk of support in America. And I'd like to see more emphasis on that. But generally, what strikes me about today's social movements uh, especially what's going on with uh, black leaders like Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams is talking about protecting voting rights, uh, protecting the gains of civil rights movements. There's a d direct connection there. Black Lives Matter is talking about focusing on police brutality, which was very much part of the civil rights movement. If you go back to the speeches of the March on Washington, August 63, that was a major topic of discussion. I've got to say, though, what I've really been dwelling on in the last week as I think about this book and where we are in America, there is such a direct connection between where we are 
and the civil rights movement, which is this. Freedom Summer, Mississippi, 1964, didn't succeed in bringing integration to Mississippi, but it did succeed in beginning to get black people able to vote in Mississippi. Before Freedom Summer, 7% of black adults in Mississippi could vote. By 1968, 59% of black adults in Mississippi could vote. What did that mean? It meant that black politicians began getting elected. One of them is a young guy named Benny Thompson. Gets elected to local office, then gets elected to mayor, and eventually gets elected to the Congress. Today, Benny Thompson is the chairman of the January 6th committee looking into the invasion of the Capitol after the, after the last presidential election. So I see a direct connection. Freedom Summer improves American democracy in Mississippi. And now one of the beneficiaries of that, Benny Thompson, is trying to protect American democracy. Tom Ricks, the book is Waging a Good War, a Military History of the Civil Rights Movement, 1954 to 1968. Tom, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. You're welcome. Thank you for giving me the time. Thank you.